0: And so little by little, piece by piece, we're readdressing some things that might seem fairly elementary to the life of a normal Christian follower. But for those of us who've either followed Jesus a long time or have never investigated at all, I think we are finding this to be pretty powerful and poignant at times. A Bible college student uh, written about in Scott McKnight's book, The King Jesus Gospel writes these words of his own life experience that I think may reflect some of ours. He says, At its heart, I have to say that I was raised by the gospel of fear. Growing up as a child, I was given some basic ideas. You're a sinner, and you need to be with Jesus, and he saves you from hell. So we always talked about how we are sinners and how we are drifting away from God And we need to come to him before he is forced or has to send us to hell. His name is Craig and he's a real person. And uh, like him, many of us have felt that at times as well. Scott McKnight goes on to write in that book of an experience he had in an airport. I've shared that story here, I think, before, but he, Scott McKnight, this author and seminary professor, sits down in an airport and strikes up a conversation with the gentleman to his right, and in the course of their discussion, he finds out that this gentleman happens to be a pastor. And he says, "Oh, this is really helpful. I'm in the middle of writing a book right now. You could really help me. And the pastor is thinking, you know, like most pastors, oh, maybe I'll get quoted in a book, you know, and, he was going to get quoted. Uh, and he asks the pastor, uh, What is the gospel? And this pastor, like you or me, would likely do with any sort of being put on the spot, says, Well, the gospel is that we are sinners. Jesus died for our sins so we can be forgiven and have heaven when we die. Which, let me be incredibly clear, all of that is true. But that isn't the gospel. That's not the gospel at all. That's one little sliver of salvation, which is the atonement theory of the gospel. And so Scott McKnight looks kind of lovingly over at this pastor and says, okay, so if I understand it, you're telling me the gospel is, uh, we're sinners, Jesus died for our sins, so we can be forgiven and have a heaven when we die. And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, that's the gospel. And he says, okay, second question, then did Jesus ever preach the gospel? And this pastor thinks about it for a second, goes, ah, you're trying to trick me. And he says, no, Jesus never preached the gospel because Jesus hadn't died and risen again. So if that's the gospel, he never preached the gospel. And you and I are invited to enter into that reality for a minute. What is the gospel to us? Is the gospel merely our forgiveness of sin, which, again, we desperately need and is only found in Jesus? Don't hear me paint for you or begin to widen the road to salvation. I would never intend or want or desire to do that at all. But what is the gospel if it's not merely that we are sinners, Jesus died for our sins, so we can have heaven when we die? I wanna invite us today in the course of turning back to Jesus, to pursue a more robust and fully biblical view of what the gospel is. I believe that it will make all the difference in our life as we move forward. And you may be thinking, listen, I gave my life to Jesus 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 40 years ago. I, I've already got the gospel bit down. And my gentle exhortation to us and my own soul included would be, the, we need the gospel every day and every minute. And the only reason we wouldn't need the gospel every day and every minute is if all the gospel had become was forgiveness of sin and the promise of heaven when we die. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We uh, are going to anchor in there. Uh, if you're using you version, let me just give a little disclaimer. It's acting really weird today and I don't I don't know what's going on. A couple of, It's up. It's working. Michelle Nation fixed it again. <laughs> If Michelle ever gets sick, we just close down operations. Uh, thank you. So yeah, go to your Uversion event if you've got it. If you, if you don't have version download the app. I think you'll find that to be really helpful. Uh, we also posted up the link on Instagram and Facebook. It's a couple of different places today. Uh, As you turn there to Matthew 8, let me set a little precursor as we dive back into a reclamation of the robustness of the gospel today. And let's begin in Matthew chapter 4. You won't have that text necessarily handy just yet, but we'll put it on screen to help you out. It says, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news of the kingdom. Highlight, underline, exclamation point, tattoo on your arm or somewhere visible. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria. And people soon began bringing to him all who were sick and whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed, or if they were epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the Ten Towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea and from east of the Jordan River. Pray with me, if you would, as we start. Father, Son, and Spirit, we're in this place, and uh, if anybody out there is anything like me, we're uncomfortable with this topic. The thought that maybe, just maybe, I have thought about the gospel Wrongly or too small, uh, brings up all kinds of insecurity in me. And I just want to defend and I want to argue and I want to fight because how could it possibly be that something so simple, something so foundational to what we believe could have been wrong all this time? Holy Spirit, would you uh, move in this room as you've been doing all morning, would you move yet again and lower our blood pressure even in this moment that we enter into this time to have a refreshed, enlarged view of your gospel and that we would arrive in these moments with curiosity, that we would suspend cynicism or any nature, that we've got it all figured out, that we would just arrive with curiosity to your scriptures. Holy Spirit, speak, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. he announced the good news of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom. Turn with me now if you're not already there to Matthew chapter chapter eight. Matthew chapter eight. So we, we started in Matthew four, we began to set the tone for this way that Jesus was living through the eyes of Matthew, the gospel writer. And then we pick up the story in Matthew eight, verse five. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him. This is the story that was referenced in the video by the Jesus Project guys. Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said in verse seven, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I'm not even worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from wherever you are and my servant will be healed. I know this, Because I'm under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go. Or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Guys, I I wanna meet Jesus someday and I want him to say to each and every one of us, I was amazed by your faith. Let's amaze Jesus with how big our faith is. He goes on in verse 10, "Uh, turning to those who were following him and isn't this so often the case, Jesus turns to those following him and says, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And we begin to see this connecting back to the story of Israel. And I tell you this, verse 11, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. The many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home, because you have believed it has happened. And the young servant was healed that day same hour, that same hour. In that same book, uh, the King Jesus Gospel, Scott McKnight defines the gospel as succinctly as he possibly can for us, because we are at our root Americans, and so at root we are sort of reductionists, and we need everything to be tweetable, right? And he gives us great, great discussion, he says, okay, I'm going to give it to you in a tweetable format, Uh, and so here it is, the gospel is the story of Jesus as the completion of the story of Israel. That is the most distinct way that the gospel could be put by one Christian author who's highly respected as a theologian. And this reality that every time Jesus begins to talk about the gospel, at least every time he talks about it in large scope, he references back to Israel, to the women and men of Israel, that the story of the gospel of Jesus is rooted in the completion of Israel's story with God which helps us answer some of the bigger questions we've probably all asked at times. Of, Why do we need the Old Testament? I just want Jesus. Well, because you can't understand Jesus fully without Israel. Because the story of Jesus, the story of the gospel, is the completion of the story of God's people who wandered all the time and left him and God was faithful and loving and his goodness ran after them. So we get this, uh, this initial story of this Roman centurion coming, this Roman officer coming to Jesus. But this is really, really uh, fascinating stuff. And I, um, I wanna do my very best to be brief here so as to not lose you. But I don't wanna miss that there are seven other stories. And if you're one of those that needs help remembering some things, this might be a way to remember that the gospel of the kingdom can be explained by eight stories beginning in Matthew 8. The gospel of the kingdom, eight stories beginning in Matthew 8. So we have that first story that we just read. We're going to come back to it. Let me just give you a quick blow by, especially for those of you who are a bit cinematic and you need kind of the bigger picture of this. Hang with me. Here's the story. So that's story one. Story two, Jesus arrives. These are exactly in order in Matthew. You can follow these yourself and uh, be sure that I'm not making stuff up. I'm not leaving anything out. I'm not adding anything in. These are exactly as they're accounted in Matthew 8. You first have this one we just read. Then Jesus arrives at Peter's house where Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a very high fever. Jesus simply touches her and her fever goes away. Next story. That same evening, many demon-possessed people and sick people alike come to Jesus and they are all healed, every single one of them. Next after that. In a short discussion of who and where would people follow Jesus, Jesus responds with these words: "Foxes have dens to live in, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place." It's quite uh, the picture of a king. Would you agree? These people have an understanding of a king in a castle with, you know, a harem and chariots and like apple pie or whatever it is kings ate. Like it was good. And Jesus is saying, let me begin to paint for you the picture of my kingdom and the king that I am. He says, foxes have dens, I got nothing. And he goes on to challenge another disciple who mentions he has a funeral to attend and that he would follow Jesus after he returns from the funeral. And Jesus' response to that is, literally, follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Waste no time in following me. You have nothing more important in your life than to follow me right now. Next story. Jesus falls asleep on a boat with his 12 disciples. They wake up to stormy, well, they're awake already. There's stormy waters and they're freaking out, these 12 disciples. They wake Jesus up. What in the world's going on? And Jesus simply says these exact words. Why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Like do do subjects in the king's castle Worry about people outside the wall of the castle? Nope, they don't worry about that stuff. Our dear friend, Jason Blumow, has told me before, eagles don't spend their time worrying about ants. Like, they just don't, Like right? they, They're not worried about ants. Eagles are soaring in the sky. And, and he begins to paint this picture. We could be on a boat with stormy seas, but you shouldn't even worry because you have the king on board. Why are you afraid? You have so little faith. And he gets up. He rebukes the wind and the waves, as if to, or not as if, but to declare that he has authority even over weather systems and the ocean and lakes. Next story: Two violently possessed men come to Jesus, and he casts out the demons by simply by simply saying to the demons, "All right, go." Those are the only words we get in Scripture that Jesus uses. "All right, go." No, like sermon, no. Talk about tweetable, man. He's got characters to spare. <laughs> the demons leave and the men go into, uh, the demons leave the men and the demons are transferred into a herd of pigs, the scriptures tell us. They go running down an embankment and drown in a lake. Next story. People uh, start bringing Jesus, a paralyzed man on a mat, And Jesus sees their faith and he says, be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. So wait, you've been healing all these infirmities and everything and so we bring our paralyzed friend to you on a mat we're hoping you'll heal his paralytic condition and Jesus' first response is your sins are forgiven. Oh wow, oh wow. This is a king who claims to have authority that is unheard of. Next story, Jesus invites Matthew and this is the final story in that group of eight. Jesus invites Matthew, a despised con artist in our current day, we would call. He invites him to follow him, and at dinner at Matthew's home, just a little bit later, Jesus is responding to the criticism he's receiving for finding himself in the company of such sinners. Jesus' response to the religious types in the room is, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. He says, now, go and learn the meaning of the scripture. (laughs) And the scripture is, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. All these little snapshots that are exploding the picture in that day and age of the central figure in any society, which was the king. And everybody would have a picture and an idea of how a king operates. And he's blowing up their Thought of this and their picture of it. This isn't somebody that thinks the way normal kings think. He's he's encouraging them to show mercy. He's healing. He's forgiving. He's finding time for the lowly. Jesus is king, and living in his kingdom redefines all of life. Jesus is king, and living in his kingdom is redefining every corner of life. This this is the picture of the gospel. We can't be lulled into a false sense of the gospel is merely our transaction with Jesus to get our ticket into heaven. We can't be lulled into that. The gospel is so much bigger than what I had understood as a kid, as a five-year-old kid sitting in one of those little tiny church chairs looking down at red carpet. This sweet woman prayed me through a very heartfelt prayer that I met with all my heart where I confessed my sin before God and I asked him to come into my heart and to save me of my sin and to prepare me for heaven when I die and I meant it and it was all true And I believe salvation came to my soul that day, but that was not the whole of the gospel. Because if so, there was no need to do anything more with Jesus until heaven. I would just get to heaven and I'd be like, hey, remember that conversation we had? So I'm good, right? Punch my ticket. Willard used to call this the Christian barcode. So we're we're trying to get the right barcode on our forehead so when we arrive at the pearly gates and they scan barcodes, our barcode gets us in. And we we flip the gospel upside down as a means to get us into heaven, but Jesus was always attending to get heaven into us. Jesus is king. And living in his kingdom will redefine all of us. So yes, I I am a sinner without Christ who is destined for eternal separation from him. No question. Jesus died for sin for all to remove the stain of our transgression. Yes. And if we believe him, whatever believe means, heaven is reserved for us. But I was taught to believe in him and to pray this simple little prayer where I believed a few propositional truths that are, by the way, true, but that that was the extent of my belief in God. But that was not the extent of God's invitation of my belief. The two main problems here with viewing the gospel in that way, and I, I think we all have slipped into this at times, the two main problems with it, there's a lot of problems, but the two main problems is, uh, first off, this just isn't how Jesus talked about the gospel. It's how Billy Graham talked about the gospel. God rest his soul, loved Jesus very much. That's not how Jesus ever talked about the gospel. We, we look back through, and I've got pages and pages of notes here that I don't have time to get to, where, where I went through every scripture I could find where Jesus says the gospel, or the gospel of heaven, or the gospel of the kingdom, and that's not how he talked about the gospel. Dozens and dozens of times in the Gospels, he says that he came to preach the Gospel. And he invited you and I, us, to repent and to believe, to turn away from our wicked ways, to place our trust and believe in him, yes. But the Gospel was always a bigger picture. The second problem with viewing the Gospel is simply this transaction that gets me my ticket to heaven is... That If this is the gospel, you actually don't have to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is optional. All that kind of like take up your cross and follow me stuff is just like a cool Pinterest meme. To post, But it's not really necessary to live out the Jesus way. That if we view the gospel that way, that all that living the Jesus way means is, I pray to prayer, I believe these things to be inherently true, and then I live my life, you know, I try to be good, you know, don't like murder people or rob banks, but by and large, I just kind of do whatever I want. So if I want to be a horrible, nasty person on Facebook, that's my right. The Jesus way doesn't impact that. If I want to be a monster in business and destroy others, well, you know, it's capitalism, that's the way it goes. The Jesus way doesn't penetrate that. If I want my politics to reflect something that Jesus would never support, well, that's my right as an American or a Canadian or a German or whatever. Jesus doesn't penetrate that way of life. But the Jesus way goes through these eight stories as if to say the Jesus way will change everything it'll change the way you view authority. It'll change the way you view healing. It'll change the way you view humility. It'll change the way you view family. It'll change the way you prioritize your life goals. The Jesus way will change the way you handle your money. The Jesus way will change the way you relate with others. The Jesus way will even change your pace of life and that when you're getting too busy and don't have time for others, the Jesus way will impact that and say, this isn't my way for you. Because Jesus is king, living in the kingdom redefines all of life. So how do we make this shift? How do we land this? How does this go from simply being some sort of theological Sunday school lesson to you know something that changes the way you and I live? And I think... First of all, we have to start trusting God with the little stuff. See, to say I trust God with world peace and, uh, you know, like feeding the orphans in Africa, but I don't trust God to feed my own family is actually to not trust God at all. Because that other stuff, it's all not that it doesn't matter, it matters deeply, but it's also ethereal. It's out there. And you and I don't actually have to wrestle with that on a day to day basis. But you know what we do have to wrestle with? When will these kids stop screaming? Right? How am I going to get them dropped off everywhere I have to go? How am I gonna deal with my monster boss or monster friend or monster pastor? How will I do it? And these are the areas, these are the spaces and places where Jesus invites us in to say, am I king of your life? Will I be king of your heart? We are pretty quick as a people to remember and even recite really great verses around this idea that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, God has all the resources of heaven, but I don't give to the church. I'm just really sorry you don't trust God then with your money. Plain and simple. I know that's a little harsh and you're like, oh, crap. You cannot say you trust God with your money if you do not give to the local church sacrificially, regularly. And and by the same token, you and I cannot say that we trust God with our relationships and yet not actually trust him with our relationships. We must actually approach God and and say to him, hey, in this particular relationship, I don't want to try. I want to do what I want to do. And God is whispering to our souls something along the lines of, hey, you know, like I said a lot in that book about relationships and how to relate with others. You should read it and you should do that stuff because the stuff you're doing, well, A, it doesn't work for the pragmatists in the room, but B, it's not the Jesus way. If Jesus is king, then living in his kingdom will redefine every part of life. It is not a plus or an add on to our life. It redefines all. I fear at times in my own life and even in the life of us as a local church that for those of us who have been following Jesus for 20 years and I am the chief among sinners here, I fear that for those of us who have followed Jesus for 20 years, we are one-year-old Christians 20 times over and that very few of us have become 20-year-old Christians. And church, I I gotta just say, it's time for us to start looking like 20-year-old Christians. Now is the time. Not out of like some guilt or shame, like we're being really, really bad, but out of an invitation that Jesus is king and that if we will live into his kingdom, he will begin to redefine everything about our life. And we will not change our thinking on these things until we start doing these things. Jesus always invited us in to a new way of living that would change our thinking. So we don't stand over here and and wait and go, God, change the way I think about that friend and that relationship, and then I will begin to treat them more in the Jesus manner. God is saying, nope, just treat them in the Jesus manner, and that will change the way you think about them. God, I'm over here and I'm waiting for you to change my financial situation or the way I see money, and then I will become generous to the church you've called me to with my money. And God is saying, no, become generous to the church you call it your home and begin to give regularly and I will actually change through that the way you look at money. He also actually promises that you'll have more money, which is really, really crazy. It gets really odd and weird and I don't want to do a whole prosperity thing, but it's like in the book. See if I won't bless you. Trust me in this. I sat with a pastor here recently who leads a large church and he was meeting with somebody who was really really hard up for money and they were going through a significant issue and um, he invited the people uh, first to show them their giving record before he helped them we're not there don't freak out (laughs) but I thought wow wow something to think about anyway I don't know if it's right or wrong but it's something to think about if he is king and if his kingdom is actually on the move then we will trust him and give over the rule and reign of these aspects of our lives. Just will, because he's the king and his kingdom is on the move. And, and if he's the king and his kingdom's on the move, then these eight stories and the 73 other ones like them display how this king operates in his kingdom humbly, gently, redemptively, present, loving, caring. How do we, as a church family, begin to reflect both individually and corporately and live out this reality that Jesus is king? Uh, Let me offer three things that jump out to me here. And the first is, where might I trust fully in Jesus as our healer? One of the keys in this story in, Chapter eight that I have scanned over so many times over the years is the fact that the disciples already tried to heal this guy's young servant and failed at it. Right? He, he comes to Jesus. So th- there's an hour healer piece to this. We we have a number of us in the community, both who are here in the room today and who are not in the room today, who have significant things that need healing. I think it's time for us as a body to say that's ours. Like, we're, we're gonna own that. We're gonna get together 12 people and we're gonna go to their house and we're gonna own, anoint them with oil and we're gonna pray like crazy. And if that doesn't heal them, we're gonna say, Jesus, you gotta show up. Where am I to trust fully in Jesus as our healer? Where, where we carry that together. Secondly, where, where might I trust fully in Jesus as their protector? Meaning, how do we begin to pray and to trust Jesus fully to protect the other in our midst? We ask God, protect me and you know, the schmuck down the street. I don't care what you do to him. Let him get hit by a truck. I don't care, but protect me. And I think part of the shift here is Jesus inviting us in to say, no, think about protection of the other. We can't sing, you know, the the modern-day Jesus drinking song. Oh, the overflowing, never-ending, reckless love of God. We can't, like, we can't sing that, but then hate Muslims. It doesn't work, guys. We can't sing that and hate the LGBTQZ community. The, the, The two things don't align. Now, there are things about both of those communities that we can say, Personally or theologically that we don't line up, but we cannot withhold love and say that Jesus is love. It just doesn't like work that way. But again, that piece, even and I don't want to shut you down, but even that piece is easy for us to applaud, but it is harder for us to live that out in the day to day. Because we say that of the other group, but then we hate our neighbor on Facebook and tell them what an idiot they are. It doesn't line up, guys. Where might I trust fully in Jesus as their protector? As their protector. Maybe we need to start praying for refugees. I read a stat this week. It hasn't been tested, so you can fact check me and correct me, but I read a stat this week. 70 million refugees in the world right now. 70 million. The highest number of refugees in the history of the world that we know of are now people who, their war-torn countries were such horrible places to live, they were willing to go live in a tent anywhere to get out of their country. We may stand at the precipice of the greatest opportunity for peace that we have ever seen in our entire life. And yet so many of us are Christians are still praying that God would direct the bombs to kill the bad guys. I don't get it. They're protectors begin to pray for others. Even the people we can't stand, we pray for their protection. Whew, that one's tough. Start with the guy next door to you who plays his music too loud. God protect him. I might kill him, so protect him, right? All right, move on, Stu. It's too heavy. Move on. Uh, Okay. Jeez Louise, man. Chill out. Uh, Our healer, uh, their protector, and then finally my forgiver here's the thing. You've heard me say this before. We typically start with ourselves and um, then we just kind of end there. You know, it's just kind of all about me. It's all about me, Jesus, right? Um, Can we end with ourselves for once? Can we start with the community? God, what kind of healing are you wanting to do in the community and what's my play in that? How do I play a role in that? And then secondly, move to the other in our community and in our world. How do I pray for the protection of the other, the least of these? I'm so convicted when we come down and we serve at the homeless shelter that that is one of the only times all year I think about the homeless in my city. And I was so deeply convicted by that this time. Pray for the protection of the other. And then finally end with my forgiveness. Like forgiveness is lovely and beautiful and amazing. Like, so let's never make little of the salvation of our souls by Christ. Never make little of it. But let's start in the other spot, just maybe. Mark chapter nine, another beautiful story of the gospel of the kingdom. This dad brings his boy uh, to Jesus again, a situation where he had already brought the boy to the 12 disciples and they couldn't heal him. Mark nine. Jesus responds to them, uh, quote, uh, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? End quote. Whew. the dad responds to that phrase, uh, help us if you can, quote, end quote, help us if you can. Jesus has some words for that. And he says, what do you mean if I can? What do you mean if I can? The father cries out in response to that, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Help me overcome my unbelief. And so Jesus heals the boy immediately. And then later that day, the disciples are with Jesus in a quiet space. And they they look to Jesus and they go, Jesus, why couldn't we cast out the demon? Like we did the thing. We did the three-step plan. We did the prayer. We did the oil. We, We did all the stuff. Why didn't we do it? And Jesus responds, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. Only by prayer. I think it probably starts with prayer, friends. Here we find ourselves in the Lenten season. If we do nothing else in Lent, Could we pause a few minutes every day and pray for the healing of those who need healing in our community? Pray for the protection of the other in our neighborhood and pray finally for our own salvation that we would fall in love with it yet again. Be thankful for Jesus. This kind can be cast out only by prayer. Father, we uh, pause even in this moment to pray. And we say to you, thank you for your goodness and your love. Thank you that you care about us and about the other more than we ever could. Move even in our closing moments where we need conviction in our souls, God, may conviction land. Where we need encouragement and uh, just a, a balm of love on our souls, do that for us as a community and individuals today. God, in, in anything that I may have said that wasn't of you, may it fall away and may your goodness and truth remain. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stand to your feet if you would as we uh, close out our morning together and I wanna encourage you to pray this prayer both uh, privately right where you're at and then the prayer team will be around the room all over the place ready to pray with you. Jesus, I believe you are my ultimate and fill in your blank. You're my ultimate healer. You're my ultimate protector. You're my ultimate forgiver. You're my ultimate friend. Jesus, I believe that you are ultimately my father. Jesus, I believe that whatever your blank is. And then finish that prayer with, help me overcome my unbelief. And pause in that for a minute. God, where where is my unbelief? Where am I I locked in that where you want to bolster my belief? As you pray through that and we worship, we're going to, just give you a few minutes to reflect. And I want to challenge you after you've reflected on that privately for a minute, come to somebody on the prayer team and pray through that with them so they would carry that with you. So you wouldn't carry it individually or alone. Jesus, I believe you are my ultimate. Help me overcome my unbelief. Let's worship together.